This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to continue looking at the book of James. Uh, I'd like to uh, I'd like to take a moment and just pray. Also, I'd like to share a couple uh, letters that I got this week. Uh, one of them, one of the letters that I got this week, this thing is really cool, is uh, someone was just destitute, someone was just broke, and uh, they heard we had a benevolent fund, and so they gave to that, and they wrote this note this week that we got. Several months ago, you recall that you, your church, uh, and through the request of one of your members, were kind enough to financially assist me through a devastating crisis involving the accidental loss of my vehicle. And as a result, I was unable to pay my rent. I was unable to buy food. I was unable to pay my utility bills, much less replace my vehicle, which was declared a total loss. But due to the kindness of Sanctuary Church and God's help, I was able to make a full recovery. God has recently blessed me with another job. As such, I wish to, quote, pay it forward, end of quote, so to speak in order that your church might benefit the needs of others going through hard times. So somebody's going through a hard time, they got a job, and then they said, likewise, I've enclosed $500 cash to do as God directs so you can help other people in their time of need. Isn't that great? I mean, it's just so cool. So, but anyway, but I just want to thank everybody for your generosity because your generosity changed this person's life. And uh, that's what it does. Now, I have another letter that I actually opened up this letter. I opened up this letter last night. Last night, I opened this letter. This is from uh, someone that is in prison. Someone that's been in prison their entire life since being a teenager. Uh, they did something that caused them to serve a life sentence. And uh, they said this, I've been in, been in prison for, like I said, around 30 years. And here's the letter, because uh, Sanctuary Church has been such a blessing to this person. This is what they say, and, I, and I'm, I'm reading it. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I certainly hope this finds you and yours full of joy and hopeful because of your position in Christ. Even though our country is in disarray, we can always give thanks because of our security in Christ. We know that even with this, uh, that this serves the Lord's purpose. It's not always easy to maintain, maintain that perspective, but God does help us, and there is, uh, as long as we submit to him. Then he says, he's completely changed my heart. This person was in jail for murder. He has completely changed my heart, and I am amazed. I'm so very thankful for what he has done and continues to do in me. He truly is amazing and worthy of our worship and praise. And then he closes with this. He says, may you be protected from all evil and keep your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. With that, I will depart. Thank you once again. I look forward to the day that I am able to meet you and be with the true brothers and sisters in Christ at Sanctuary Church. And may God bless you and may he keep you. So he was just pardoned after 30-something years. He's going to be getting out of jail. But he wrote that letter. So I just wanted to share with you how this church is impacting people's lives. It's awesome. It's just awesome. So uh, so grateful for that. Anyway, let's, let's pray. Let's pray. And then we will uh, jump into the scriptures. Father, thank you for today. Thank you that we can be here. Thank you that we can worship. 
Thank you, Father, we can open the scriptures. And Father, I pray for all of us here this morning. And may we know that our our hope is not in a political party. May we know that our hope is not in a political system, but our hope is in the King of kings and Lord of lords, who's rescued us and redeemed us and made us right with God. And Father, I want to pray for our nation. I pray, God, that we would declare our, our dependence upon you. Father, I pray for divine intervention. I pray that you would have your way. May our eyes and the affections of our heart be steadfast upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Father, I pray that you would do what only you can do. And Father, I ask that you would comfort us. I ask, Lord, that all those viewing from afar and all those that are here this morning, that we would let the scripture be our foundation, that it would be thy word alone that we stand upon that our faith is not impacted by anything other than you, that you are our rock and our salvation and an ever-present help in time of trouble. So we commit this morning to you and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen and God bless you all. So James chapter 1 beginning in, uh, in verse 6, but I'm going to review for us just a moment here. And the Bible opens up in James chapter 1 verse 1. And James says, James is servant of God. And of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting, my brothers, count it all joy when you fall into different types of temptations or trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. But let patience have its complete work, that you might be complete and mature, not lacking anything. But... If anyone in the midst of your trials lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all freely and will not withhold it. So this morning I'm going to review James chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 briefly. And then we're going to be looking at James chapter 1, verses 6 through verse 17. So what we do at Sanctuary Church is we open the Bible, we read the Bible, we explain the Bible, and then we apply the Bible. Kind of an old school approach, but you know what? I think it works. So here we go. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. One of the things that James says is, it says, to the church which is scattered abroad. I don't need that. Thanks, Ron. And so it says that we're scattered. And I'd like to talk about that for just a moment. Think about that, that this letter is written to a scattered church. This letter is written to a church that can no longer meet under one roof like the church today. We can't meet under one roof. So we're online, we're in the parking lot, we're in a tent, and whoever knows wherever else we're at. But we can't meet because we're scattered physically. But as I read this, I was thinking, you know, it's not only just physically. I think people today were scattered, you know, emotionally. I were scattered, some of us, uh, spiritually. And so we are also scattered, of course, physically, but this is written to people just like us that are trying to figure out how to do life when you're scattered. How do you do it when you can no longer meet like you used to meet? And so written to the scattered church here, he says this. He says, your faith is going to be tried. And so he talked about how problems have the power to purify your faith. They have the power to purify your faith when they're handled well. And so he says, hey, on this day, when trials are just trampling over you, what you need to do is you need to ask God for wisdom. 
Because God wants to mature you. We talked about how he's chiseling away at you. He's shaping you. He's forming you. He's completing you. This is what God is doing. And in the midst of your trials, you're, you're like this. You're like, but God, I don't understand what I'm going through. Lord, what should I do? You're, you're thinking, Lord, I'm just, I'm in this mess of a trial. How do I get out of this? And so after encouraging us to embrace trials because of their benefit, because they spur you on to spiritual growth. James says this, now, by the way, if you're having a hard time persevering through the trials, through the hardships, through the tumultuous times and the difficulty, and you're feeling the heat, what you need to take security in is that God is at work in you, purifying you, perfecting you, completing you, maturing you, chipping away at everything within you that doesn't look like his son. So you see here that God is at work within us. And then he talks about wisdom and he says, and then in the midst of that, because really when you're having trials, of course, he says, if anyone lacks wisdom and the inference is, the implication is, well, of course you lack wisdom. You don't know what to do and you lean to your own understanding and you make a bad situation even worse. And so you need to, to look to God. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask. That means let him pray. And so that's what you do then as you pray. And it says, if you just ask, that God will act, that God will give you wisdom and will not withhold wisdom. And so the key and the dynamic is even though God knows you need wisdom, he's not going to give it to you unless you ask him for wisdom. So that's the review. And now we're in James chapter one, beginning in verse six. But when you ask, that's wisdom during a trial, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts, this is what you're like, you're like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. And that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all their ways. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that feels a little heavy-handed to me. It feels a little heavy-handed. And then he's saying like, hey, you're getting beat up by life. You're getting pummeled by life. You don't know what to do. Hang in there. You can have joy. God's at work. And by the way, you better not doubt. Well, gosh, you know, then he kind of backs you in a corner. In fact, if you doubt, you're like a double-minded person, unstable in all your ways. And I'm feeling a little bit heavy, heavy-handed by it all. And so what he's saying is he says, look, when life is pounding in on you and life may stink and you may be losing heart and your grip on life may be weakening and you may feel like the trials are starting to wear you down and you told me, God, to come to you and ask you for wisdom, so that's what I'm going to do. And then he says that you're going to have doubts. And so, friends, the day will never come where you won't have doubts. It is human nature to have doubts. And so some of us, perhaps you came here this morning and you are struggling with your doubts. I, this last week, in utter transparency, I was really struggling with some doubts. I mean, I was, I was wrestling with some doubts about did I do the, the right thing in a particular area of my life. 
But then what happens after we have these doubts is then we don't need to feel guilt and shame and all because we're wrestling with doubt. It's a part of, of life there. And don't pretend also to have it all together uh, when, we, when we really don't. But he says, ask in faith with no doubting, knowing that we doubt all the time. So what does it look like when you doubt? What does it look like? What's he talking about here? What he's talking about is where on one hand, you're all in and you like you trust God. But on the other hand, you don't trust God and you're thinking you got to figure it out for yourself. You got to figure it out. There's some people here, you've got good minds, you're cerebral, uh, you process, you think it through, and that's all good. But sometimes the good side of that is that you don't trust God. And so have you ever had a situation where you trusted God at first, and then you begin to pull back, and then you begin to waver, and then you begin to rely on your own abilities and your own reasoning? And the speaker this morning could retire if he got a dollar for every time he's done that. And so that was funny. I don't care what you think. And so... But when we doubt, in essence, this is what we're doing. We're saying, God, like, I'm not sure, God, if I can really trust you. I'm not sure, God, if, if you're really in control. And so we want wisdom from God one day, but then on the other hand, we're seeking out our own wisdom. So the result of that is this. When you don't trust God in the midst of trials, here's what happens. You will be double-minded you will be unstable in all of your ways. It will come to expression in every area of your life. If you just don't do this one thing, and that is to trust God. So what's it mean to be double-minded? It literally means to be double-souled. It means to be indecisive. It means that literally you have division in your soul. It means that you're just kind of doing God's thing, but really doing your thing, not really yielded to God, not really wholehearted, where you're being pulled in opposite directions, where really you're just kind of straddling the fence. Yeah, I go to church, and yeah, I do that, but really I'm not sure if I can trust God. That's being double-minded there. And you end up in this place where you're just, you're constantly, you're constantly wavering back and forth like, like, you, like you're schizophrenic, like you have two minds. And so one mind trusting God, the other mind not trusting God. And so, and when are you most likely not to trust God? In what season of life, friends, are you most likely not to trust God? In your midst of trials, right? I mean, think about it. When things are going good, I mean, I'm just like you. When things are going good, I'm not checking in with the Almighty like I would when things are going bad, right? That's when you really cried out to God. And so, uh, so you end up here when trials come, when a pandemic comes, when a presidential election comes, and uh, we must remember to trust God. We must remember the goodness of God. And so not trusting God, it makes you unstable is ultimately what it does. And think of it, the word picture painted here is the ocean. And the word picture painted is as if you are like a wave being pushed around by the sea, being tossed about because you're depending on your wisdom 
and not God's. And so see the swelling of the sea, never having the same texture, never having the same shape from moment to moment, but always changing with the variations of the wind. And the Bible says that's what you are like when you don't trust God, a wave of the sea tossed about. And then he talks about, in the next few verses, the trials of poverty and the trials of prosperity. I would like to submit to you this morning that all of us here, we actually face the trials of prosperity. And I think that sometimes the trials of prosperity could be as difficult or more difficult than the trials of poverty. So let's read and hear what he has to say. Those Christ followers, believers who are in humble circumstances, ought to take pride in their high position, that is, that they're in Christ. But the rich, and I would, I would suggest that all of us here are rich by these standards. In this, in this culture, there was only poor and rich. There was no middle class. There was no middle class. And you're not poor, so really I think I qualify, most of us, we qualify as rich. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they pass away like a wild flower. In other words, recognize, don't trust in, in your riches, but recognize they're so fleeting, they're so temporary, they're so transient. But the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. And in the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. So what he's saying is that we need to humbly trust God humbly not trust in the stuff that, that we have recognized, its social status, that uh, our wealth, it's very transitory. And God can work through poverty and God can work through our prosperity. But too often we're tempted to trust, friend, in riches. And that's what he's talking about here. The temptation is to trust uh, in our success, to trust in our resources, to trust in our possessions. If I could be completely transparent with you, I grew up in a family that, uh, that had a great run of success. And my father had, uh, had never had a failure of, of all his restaurants, uh, 20 restaurants, never had a failure his whole life. So I grew up in a family culture of seeing success upon success upon success and, uh, uh, and all the blessings that go along with that. And so I've got to say that I am vulnerable to doing this very thing. I am vulnerable to trusting in success, to trusting in resources, to trusting in finances. And I just want to confess that to you and that perhaps maybe some of us here, you may have stories where you would lean that way too and to recognize that. And so he says in verse 12 that there is a blessing that comes into to times of testing. And notice he doesn't say, blessed is the person who's never tempted. He says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because after they've stood the test, that person will receive an eternal reward. Do you ever attach handling trials well, persevering to an eternal reward? It says you'll receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who serve him, who honor him. And then verse 13. So now what we're going to do is we're going to shift in our, our dialogue, in our conversation. We're no longer talking about trials. Now what we're going to talk about, we're going to shift to temptations. 
And I would suggest this to you. Not only do all of us face temptations, but a lot of us, we're losing to temptations. And I would suggest that a lot of us, you have a well-worn pattern that you lose to temptations. So I think it would serve us really well to listen to what our Creator has to say about the dynamic of temptations and how you can actually overcome temptations. So he says this in verse 13. He says, When tempted, no one should say, well, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So we get a little splice of theology here about God. One of the, the, what, the theology that we're getting is, is that God cannot be tempted, that God, that the temptation does not originate with God, that God is a God who doesn't need anything. God has everything. God is completely uh, all-sufficient. That is who he is. And so what God does, God is not the cause of temptation. God is the cure for our temptations. I'm going to show you in verse 17 how that happens. And so what he's talking about here, he's saying, look, he's writing to people that are scattered, that can no longer meet as they used to meet. He says, look, you got to figure this out, this whole temptation game. And I'm going to tell you this because many of you, you have patterns of succumbing to temptation, and that is just your life, where you have a situation where you've got good intentions, but then you fail and then you feel guilty and you circle back to your good intentions and fail and feel guilty. And we live in these cycles here of guilt. And so what he's saying is, you don't have to live that way anymore. It says here, verse 14, here's the dynamic of temptation. But each one, every person is tempted. Everyone here this morning is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So what happens here is that we have these desires. We've got good desires, and we've got desires that aren't good. And so, but those good and those wrong desires are the substrate to drag us away and ultimately hook us into sin. So what he says here is, Temptation, then, is completely an inside job. It's an inside job that God does. So you're drawn away. It means enticing the original Greek language. It speaks of a hook. It speaks of baiting a hook or baiting a trap there. And think about fish. Those of you that love to fish here, no fish ever bites on a naked hook. No fish never bites on something that doesn't entice it. But the idea is when you fish or you hunt, as it's you hide the bait under something then that can trap you. And he's saying that that's what temptations are like. Ultimately, they look good, but they can trap you, and they can actually put you in bondage here. And you're drawn away by your own desires, and it's just a matter of time before the hook is set, and we've entered into sin. So, I want to talk to you very practically about patterns of temptation that tempt you. It says that when you are tempted, in other words, you're tempted by things that may not tempt me, and I am tempted by things that may not tempt you. But, it, but he talks about this, and so I think we need to gain a little self-awareness about things that tempt us. So I want to talk about that. Some questions to ask yourself. 
So this is a little test, a little temptation test to ask yourself. What emotions make you vulnerable? I think the, the thing that makes us, one of the things that makes us vulnerable are negative emotions. Yeah, they do. I'm going to unpack that. What about the people that make you more vulnerable? What about the places or situations that make you more vulnerable? So just last night, I'm texting uh, someone that goes to this church, and I'm texting them because I just thought, this guy's been, been burning $100 a night at all the sports bars, so I'm going to text him and see how he's doing. So I texted him, and I said, and I, said I hope you're staying at home and we're at your new place and that you're not going out. And he said, it's so great. I can do my favorite pastime, and I'm not doing that. And so, uh, but here his temptation was a place, a sports bar. So what are the places that you experience that, that, that are a greater temptation for you to be in? So when am I most tempted? Maybe it's late at night. Maybe when I'm all alone. Where am I most tempted? Uh, maybe a place. Who is with me when I am tempted? There are certain people that when you are around them, the temptation factor is going to escalate. And so we need to take inventory of that. And what am I feeling when I'm tempted? Am I bored? Am I discontent? Am I lonely? Am I angry? Am I frustrated? Because what happens is, is those temptations have a way of screaming out at you. I, don't, I can just speak for myself, but they can scream at me. And they can scream at me that, hey, Rod, just do something about the temptation. Do something, Rod, do something fast, even if you have to do something cheap, but just do something about the temptation. So they scream at us, well, what are the places, what are the people, what are the things, where do you go that makes you more tempted? It says in Hebrews eleven twenty five 25, that there is pleasure in sin for a season. That's just the truth, that, it, that if it wasn't awesome, you didn't enjoy it, you, you, like, it wouldn't be so tempting. And so uh, it's fun. Sin is fun. But then you wake up and you're hooked and you're, in a, you're addicted and there's the downside to it. So we have these desires within us that want to come to expression. Maybe it's a desire, a lust. Maybe it's revenge. Maybe, maybe it's a normal desire. Maybe it's a routine desire. Maybe it's a good desire, uh, a desire, uh, a desire for food or a desire for sex, but it's a desire that you are tempted to express in the wrong place at the wrong time. Then it is uh, the wrong thing. And so here's the truth about temptation that we're drawn away. So what is it, friends? What is it that makes you vulnerable? What is it that makes you vulnerable? Like uh, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, let us not be ignorant of the enemy's devices. He's got devices and patterns and ways that he works within you. Ephesians says this. It says, written to the church, to the church, not to the unchurched, written to the church, Ephesians 4, 27. says, don't give the devil a foothold. And is it possible that a temptation could be a foothold that can be leveraged by the powers of darkness to tempt you to sin and lead you into sin? And so, again, the most common thing that I think tempts us are in the, in the world of our emotions there. And so 
Let me list for us, and this is again some questions. What are some of the areas that make you vulnerable? What are some of the areas that make you vulnerable? How about this? How about when you're physically exhausted? I have to say, the speaker this morning, I definitely am more vulnerable when I am physically exhausted. Are you? Uh, so how about when you are discouraged, when you're depressed, when you're downcast? Do you think you're a little bit more vulnerable to temptation there? How about when you're bored, you're disconnect, you're discontent? I think another one is, how about when you are spiritually dry and you're feeling empty? Do you think you're more vulnerable? How about when you're lonely and you're distant? I think especially geographically distant, that the vulnerability factor, it just, it just goes up exponentially. And so makes a big difference in your emotions when you're geographically distant. How about when you feel just insecure? Insecure about a relationship, insecure about the future. How about friends in the parking lot when you are wounded? When you are deeply wounded, do you think you're more vulnerable to temptation? How about when you hold a grudge? When you have this, uh, an intense desire to get even, to get revenge? How about, are you more vulnerable when you're grieving a loss? A loss of a family member, a loss of a lifestyle, a loss of a dream. Think you're more vulnerable? And I think one of the things that we need to do, because it says in Proverbs 4.26, plan carefully what you do and avoid evil. So the scripture is saying, look, you need to plan your life. You know your vulnerabilities. You can actually plan your life to help minimize the temptations that you face. And I think the last thing is this, and I want to throw out a little football illustration, if I could. Anybody like football in the house? Anybody about 20%? Anybody watching the playoffs? So, you know, you see these, these running backs, these beasts. Some of them are like 230 or 40 or 250 pounds, and they're, they're like have 0% body fat, and they're just like beast mode. And, so, and then you got these little guys, these little cornerbacks, 190 pounds. The guy's going full speed, and he's trying to tackle this beast. And then he just gets trampled and run over. And I would submit to you that temptations can sometimes be like that. That you feel like you're just going to get trampled and run over. So what do they do? They do something called gang tackling. And that means that you not only try to tackle and hold down, but you get all your buddies together. And all your buddies, they tackle. Maybe it takes three or four people, but three or four people, at least you can win. Well, here's my point about tackling temptation is sometimes you need to team tackle temptation and you need a friend. You need to enlist a friend. Maybe it's somebody you could be, uh, you would invite into your life. I have done this on many occasions for many years where I invite people into my life to speak into my life if they see me um, crossing the line in areas where I'm vulnerable. So last thing is invite a friend to share the struggle. The Bible says in Ephesians, and I'm beginning to close with this. That's what you say when you're teaching and you want to milk a few more minutes out of the people because maybe they're getting a little tired of listening. And so you just throw that little tidbit out there as I begin to wrap it up. 
So that's what I'm doing. So just a few minutes, but the Bible says that two's better than one in Ecclesiastes. Because if one falls, there's another one there to pick them up. And think about that in the world of temptations. What if you had somebody else there to help pick you up? If you don't have anyone like that in your life, then you fall and there's no one to help you. And so there's just the wisdom of Ecclesiastes there. And so it says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters, recognizing this, that all of us can be deceived. I don't care how long you've been following Christ, how mature you are, you can be deceived here. The little voice whispers to you and whispers to me, hey, not going to hurt you. Hey, you can do it. You can get away with it. Hey, not that bad. Verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change. God is a God who does not change. Anybody in the house need to have a God who does not change in the midst of unprecedented change in our nation. All around you, it's so hard to digest all of the change. And what we need during this, we need an island of stability that anchors your soul. And that's what God is to you. An, uh, an island of stability that can anchor your soul in an ever-changing world. So when everything is changing around you, your heavenly Father is consistent. He is constant. He is always the same, never changing, never moody, never letting you down. A God that you can always count on, who is reliable, who is trustworthy. And then it says, every good and perfect gift is from God. It literally means this. In the original language, the good giving of God. That's who he is. It is the good giving of God that never changes. So think about it in the context of, of your temptation. You always wanted to, got to get it. What do I have to do to get it? Well, God will give you every good and perfect gift if you will lean on him and trust in him. In bad times, God is good. If it's good, it came from God. And so we need to know that if it's good, that God has brought it into your life. This morning when I got up at very early, jumped in the shower, there's a hot water. It's like, oh, this is so good. I had reflections of being in Africa where I take, take a little cup of cold water every day and pour that little cup of cold water an open air, little brick outside shower, conference speaker pouring the cup of water over my head. And so, but taking that hot shower and many, many a morning, I feel that hot shower. I'm just so grateful. It's a gift from God. Every good and perfect gift is from God. Everything in our lives. And so, every good gift you have is brought into your life by God. Think about it. All of the blessings all of the joy, all of the peace, all of the satisfaction, the salvation, everything in your life, it is a gift from God. So God is always consistently good. During a pandemic, friends, God is good. Come on. During the most, right on, during the most polarizing political landscape, perhaps in history, God is still good. 
God is always good. You didn't clap on that one, did you? And so God is a God who doesn't, doesn't change at all. He never changes. Always the same. Always perfect in all of his ways. Friend, this is who God is. And so, and we are his beloved. Under the, we live under the shadow of the Almighty. And so I want to take a moment. I want to pray Pray God's uh, blessing over us as the worship team comes up. And then we're going to close in worship. If you would bow your heads with me, wherever you're at, online, in your cars, in the tent, if we could bow our heads together. And Father, we thank you that you are a God like, like no other, that you are the true and the living God. And Father, thank you that you don't change. Thank you that we can trust in you. Thank you that you are a God who gives us wisdom when we don't know what to do. Thank you that you are a God who shows us how we can actually survive temptation and not give in to it. Thank you that you are a God who we can look to, who we can trust, who is never changing. We bless you, the God of heaven, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever.